Hello and welcome to the 21st Geopolitical Economy Hour, the show that examines the fast-changing political and geopolitical economy of our time. Welcome also to a new year that promises to be nothing but rocky. So let's help rock it in the right direction. I'm Radhika Desai. And I'm Michael Hudson. There's an old saying, money makes the world go round. Like so many other truths, neoliberalism has subtly but decisively altered this one too. The adage of the neoliberal age can be said to be debt makes the world go round. Indeed, debt is not just making the world go round, it is making it spin madly. So madly that the possibility that it will spin out of control is ever present. Everywhere you look, there's a debt crisis. There's a student debt crisis. The mortgage crisis of 2008 never really went away. There's a commercial real estate crisis. There's a government debt crisis. And of course, there is uh, uh, the crisis of uh, uh, housing, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, credit card debt, st uh, 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 auto debt, etc. To keep the debt cycle going, the Federal Reserve is even changing its decade-long tolerance or intolerance of uh, inflation. For the Federal Reserve, inflation is acceptable at 3.5%, according to some reports. Um, with uh, uh, it, it would rather uh, tolerate 3.5% inflation than sacrifice the asset markets that keep going up, thanks to uh, which have kept going up thanks to low interest rates, and it doesn't want to take interest rates beyond a certain level. Raising interest rates at this point means making it harder for asset markets to go up and stay up. And that's why the Federal Reserve is going to cut interest rates, no matter whether it's managed to solve the inflation problem or not. So today we are going to continue our closer look at more than four decades of neoliberal policy and how they've changed our economy by focusing on the triangle of debt, real estate and financial instability. In short, we are going to talk about how in these decades, while incomes have stagnated, debt has expanded such that households, governments, and businesses have all become indebted to the gills. Today, one of the reports shows that uh, debt servicing itself has gone up by 50% and today accounts for almost a sixth of total government spending in the United States. How both residential and commercial real estate have become bound up in the vortex of financialization is another thing we want to talk about because uh, it is not producers, but rentiers who benefit from this type of economy. And even rent is being converted by the alchemy of financialization into interest. So at the end of the day, even land ownership and home ownership no longer matters. What matters is how much money you've got and how you can make your money make more money. So finally, we are going to talk about how even though all of this has benefited the financial sector, given its very nature, the expansion of the financial sector can only lead to crisis. And so how the mountain of debt today threatens the stability of the US financial sector and by turn of the US economy. And as Michael and I have discussed so many times, the dollar system itself. So let's start looking at this chart. Michael, this is a chart. Um, let me just find it. This is a chart of total indebtedness in the uh, United States. So you see here 
this is simply the aggregate level of uh, indebtedness. The kind of uh, blue bits at the bottom are uh, business debt. This green bit here is household debt. Uh, this purple bit here is federal debt. And then on top, you have state and local government debt, which, of course, as people will know, has been restricted by constitutional, uh, by, by legal means. So what you have here is debt from the 1960s onwards. And you can see clearly that really the debt, uh, uh, the, the, the accumulation of debt begins to take off only out in the neoliberal era from the 1980s onwards. And it really begins to take off around the 2000s when, of course, the United States Federal Reserve first experimented with low interest policies. Um, and of course, which then resumed after the 2008 financial crisis. Michael, what does this tell you? Well, you can look at the basic sweep, which is an upsweep, an exponential growth. Uh, any uh, debt is a doubling time. Uh, and there's something very uh, unique about this kind of slope. The economy doesn't grow uh, like that. The economy grows in business cycles, up and down. What you don't see here is very much of a downswing. And that's because uh, uh, th the growth of debt continues to mount up by compound interest. Uh, the creditors, the banks, uh, simply uh, reinvest all of the interest that they get in uh, making new loans, uh, which is exponential, and they can create their own money simply on their own own computers. So uh, the, the, this uh, chart really should be juxtaposed with one of the business cycles, and you'll see that uh, any debt that grows this rapidly exceeds the ability to be paid. And that is the distinguishing feature of debt for the last 5,000 years. The natural tendency of debt is to uh, exceed the ability to, to be paid. Now, this chart simply shows uh, debt by the sector that owns it, uh, the household sector, uh, business. Uh, what it does not indicate is what this uh, debt is for. What is it collateralized for? Well, almost all of the household debt uh, is for real estate. Uh, and the same thing with uh, commercial bank debt. 80% of bank loans for this debt are real estate loans. Uh, the the, char the blue chart of government uh, debt really doesn't uh, uh, matter that much because the government simply uh, uh, creates uh, the debt and it's debt that doesn't have ever expect to be repaid. Uh, households and businesses have to pay the debt. That's what's causing the problem. Nobody ever ran, uh, got into trouble running into debt. The government doesn't run into trouble running into debt because it can simply print the money to pay. But individuals, uh, families and corporations have to pay. And when they can't pay, the, uh, that uh, hurts the banks and the banks go under. And the purpose of the Federal Reserve is to make sure that this debt keeps on growing uh, despite the fact that it uh, is stifling the economy and leading to depression. The role of the central bank is to uh, impose austerity on the whole rest of the economy to make us look like a third world country in paying the debt, because this is exactly the same kind of sweep that you have uh, for the global South countries owing their foreign debt and for every country in the West. So the whole West, Europe, the United States, has a chart just exactly like this, 
and uh, they're all slowing down and they're all in a uh, what's called a debt deflation right now. Well, you know, I just like to add a few more points because this chart is really kind, kind of more interesting than might appear at first sight. Of course, there is the upsweep that you talk about, Michael, but there is also the fact that if you look at um, the period from essentially from about 1950 till the end of the 1970s, there is a, an upsweep, but it is not so pronounced. What you see now uh, in the neoliberal era after 1980, and particularly after 19, uh, after about 2000, that's when you see the really exponential uh, increase in, in debt. And I think that that, as I say, coincides with two very important things. Number one, the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, which meant that this was essentially permission for um, the U.S. financial sector to simply uh, 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 enter into the most uh, 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 breakneck competition with one another in order to lend more and more, speculate more and more, and so on. So, so that's what you're looking at. And of course, the other part is the historic decision in after the 2000 uh, crash, the, the dot-com bubble crash, when the Federal Reserve first began experimenting with low interest rates. So you had sort of one between one and two percent interest rates from about 2000 till about 2004, five, when because the dollar was coming under a lot of pressure, the Federal Reserve was forced to start raising interest rates. And that graduated series of interest rate increases was, of course, what eventually pricked the housing and credit bubbles. So, so I, I mean, that's one thing. The second thing uh, as well is that United States uh, 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 government debt as well, you know, at one level, you can say that, yeah, sure, the government debt doesn't have to be paid off. But the thing is, it's not as though the government debt does not matter. At the end of the day, when the even when the U.S. government or when even the U.S. government borrows a lot, it has it does suffer because today the U.S. government is having to pay much more money uh, in return for its debt in order to borrow from the market than it used to have to. So and even in the era of low interest rates, U.S. Uh, government paid a higher premium, higher interest rates on its debt than, say, a country like uh, Germany, for example. So in that sense, I think that what you see here, which is particularly after uh, 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 the, the the increase in the, the debt in the neoliberal era, this initial increase here you see up to 2008 is basically created out of uh, essentially giving tax cuts to rich people. Um, uh, and 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 even while they so 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 that expanded the federal deficit, even though uh, you had um, cutbacks in social security and so on. And today, a very large part of U.S. debt is actually going to paying uh, interest rates, uh, pay paying interest on uh, U.S. government debt. So, so in that sense, it's important. And then finally, of course, the expansion of household debt, which again, you see it, it increases uh, uh, it increased uh, a little bit in the 1980s, then it sort of slowed, but then you see it particularly increasing in the 2000s with the housing and credit bubble, then it slows again, and then once again it is increasing, and this increase, of course, is almost entirely because of the difficulties in which uh, U.S. households find themselves. So on the one hand, at the top end of the borrowing, of course, you have borrowing in order to consume more, in order to spend more in one or the other way, including in order to speculate more on in, in, in stock markets. But on the other hand, you also have a lot of distress borrowing. So this is what, what we are looking at. And finally, this increase in business uh, debt is also because 
essentially what has been happening over the last several decades is that companies are bought by other companies and then what these companies do is it they 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 burden every business they buy down with as much debt that as they can get in order to uh, essentially use the money for other purposes including giving fat dividends to owners and and so on but this is what you're looking at so we're looking at a highly highly indebted world well, the, there are a number of points also in that chart. Uh, after uh, 2000, a lot of that uh, government debt was uh, the war debt, uh, the Iraq war debt. Uh, from, the from 1950 through uh, about 1980, almost all the growth in government debt was um, military spending abroad. Uh, and this debt is not only owed to the United States, uh, holders uh, and uh, the Federal Reserve, but to foreign government. So uh, that is not included in the chart, but that's much of the growth. The interesting thing also is uh, that you see this acceleration of debt after 2008, and yet that was the period of zero uh, interest rate policy. Uh, when the Obama uh, crash uh, occurred, the Federal Reserve said, uh, the one thing we have to make sure is that families bear the brunt of this enormous financial fraud and bad lending and junk mortgages that have taken place. We want to save the banks and uh, we want to sacrifice homeowners for it. We want to make the public pay to the banks to make sure that uh, homeowners lose their home and lose money, bank businesses go bankrupt, but the banks continue to get richer and richer with this debt and this debt will not get wiped out by bankruptcy. It's going to grow and grow just like student loan debt has grown. Uh, you, uh, and uh, you see a, a lot of this uh, bus business debt going up, and yet this business debt is, was almost interest-free, uh, very low. And uh, what the chart uh, should be correlated with, if we really had a, a group of chart, was all of this debt uh, was spent uh, not on uh, producing goods and services, not in building factories and means of production, not in employing labor, but in buying stocks and bonds and speculating. It was all used to buy uh, uh, companies, load them down with debt. And so this corporate debt that's going up is a result of the mergers and acquisitions, the corporate raids, the corporate takeovers, and treating corporations uh, in a way that would make money for their uh, uh, stockholders and their uh, private uh, owners uh, but not for the economy at large. So a company would make money. Suppose you take over Sears uh, or Toys R Us, uh, the private capital that would take over, they would borrow the money, hardly any interest from a bank, um, 100%, buy out uh, Sears or uh, another company. The first thing they'd do was say, okay, now we've uh, uh, taken out, taken over the company be the Chicago Tribune. Let's uh, take the pension funds that's invested in stocks and let's uh, borrow against that. Let's uh, let the pension funds lend the money to the company uh, and let's borrow more money from the banks uh, to the company. And uh, the money that we borrow, we will then pay out a special dividend to ourselves. So the money goes from the banks to the owners with, uh, without <laughs> uh, having any positive effect at all, but having a very negative effect. It leaves the company so deeply in debt that it goes bankrupt. 
like Sears or Toys R Us or all of the other companies that have been uh, essentially going uh, bankrupt. And uh, when they go bankrupt, they're sold to larger and larger companies. And uh, so this debt has the effect of concentrating ownership uh, within the uh, sector. And uh, the household debt has gone up because uh, as you uh, uh, incre uh, increase the uh, amount of money that banks will lend against housing, banks have competed. Who can lend the most money uh, against homes for new uh, uh, families wanting to uh, buy homes? Will the banks compete to lend so much money that if you're a family buying a home, you have to uh, borrow more money than uh, the, your rival who's borrowing from their bank and the banks have just uh, created a new real estate bubble. And that's what we're in now. The uh, real estate prices have gone up so high, the rental prices so high that uh, that one of the byproducts of this is a rise in homelessness. And uh, with all of this debt, uh, somehow uh, people don't have enough money to <clears throat> buy goods and services and standards of living have gone down. We're living in a third world, increasing third world austerity plan as a result of this upsweep in debt. No, absolutely. And, you know, what you say reminds me that, you know, to all the issue, we've already said that, you know, one of the reasons why, especially poor households borrow is because they basically cannot make ends meet. They have to to borrow. And so they are becoming indebted. But there's another reason. And that is, you know, why is there why has there in the neoliberal decades been such a huge explosion in student debt? It's because government cutbacks have stopped funding universities to the same extent. So fees go up. Uh, and of course, uh, the cost of living goes up for students because, of course, you can't rent anything half decent or even indecent for uh, unless you pay a lot of money. And so all of these things drives up the cost of an education, which then means that students uh, uh, have to get a loan. And, and and so on. So 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 essentially cutbacks in social services, including, by the way, a lot. We haven't talked about medical debt. A lot of the debt uh, uh, is incurred because people have to borrow money if they want to pay for certain medical procedures. So all of these things just goes to show that once again, under neoliberalism, it's ordinary people, the working people and the poor people who get really shafted. There's another way in which uh, these people get shafted when you have a low interest rate fueled competition for buying houses, buying homes, um, typically the sharpest competition is happening at the lower end of the market. So that the lower end uh, market, that is to say the kind of houses and homes that first time buyers will buy, tend to find uh, see the most the most appreciation in prices as a result of competition to essentially uh, uh, among among the lower end buyers and this is what prices out so many people but you know a final thing i want to say is you know this expansion of debt is also interesting because it has taken place exactly in that era when the government, right at the beginning of the 1980s, it committed itself to restricting money supply, the, committed the Federal Reserve to restricting money supply in order to, uh, 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 to slay the dragon of inflation. But what that has meant essentially is to have an economy in which people are making less money but incurring more debt. And essentially, debt becomes the way in which money is issued into the economy. And of course, the Federal Reserve itself has kept up a policy going back to 1987, where no amount of money creation is too much if 
it is to bail out the financial sector. So from 1987 onwards, when you had the 1987 crash, Greenspan first engaged in this kind of liquidity provision in order to bail out the financial sector. It was called the Greenspan put. Now over the years, it has become a Federal Reserve put. And the result is, you know, we just showed you the chart of, of, of uh, uh, indebtedness. And, and according to the Federal Reserve, the total debt or non-financial debt in the United States is now close to three times US GDP. It has doubled since 1980. Um, and so, uh, and, and there is another point that is really interesting. These charts, the chart we showed you does not include the vast amount of debt which the Federal Reserve has itself created in order to bail out the financial sector. Um, uh, and the top end of the corporate sector starting in 2020, on which the financial sector relies for its best assets. So, so essentially, and, and this, this was very surprising to me, in 2008, uh, a scholar called James Felkerson from, from your university, Michael, from UMKC, showed that um, if the Federal Reserve could not cope with the 2008 crisis by just playing its normal ro role of lender of last resort by providing ample liquidity, slashing interest rates, etc. It slashed interest rates at that time from 5% to zero. But this did not function to stabilize the system and even made it worse. And then, according to Felkerson, the Federal Reserve engaged in a host of unconventional measures, unprecedented in terms of size or scope and of questionable legality, they're there his words. And the goal of these was to explicitly improve market conditions. And this program, according to him, amounted to a total of $29 trillion. Uh, you've gone very quickly over that. And I want to uh, show how revolutionary this was. Until to, from the founding of the Federal Reserve to 2008, there was a basic philosophy of central banks going all the way back to the Bank of England uh, and to the uh, rules that uh, people discussed in uh, the 1880s and 1890s. The idea of central banks, you use the word uh, lender of last resort. That means uh, everybody realized that sometimes uh, when uh, there would be an, a business downturn uh, or a uh, shift in interest rates, uh, debtors would, uh, people would have very sound property. The buildings uh, uh, weren't uh, destroyed when uh, they went, uh, became insolvent. Companies weren't destroyed. Uh, so, but the, the problem is there was a temporary downturn in the business cycle. So uh, but banks are supposed to uh, only borrow uh, for short term and at a high penalty rate. Uh, all, every central bank in the world followed the policy. Uh, you don't make, you don't subsidize uh, rates for uh, 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 credit for banks. Since 2008, the, uh, the banks have taken control of the, the U.S. Treasury and taken control of the Federal Reserve to uh, uh, get all the money that they want for nothing. Actually, they're paid to borrow. They, uh, in two, after 2008, the Fed said, uh, we've got to make bankers richer, uh, despite the fact uh, that they're paying themselves more than any other sector. Uh, they, uh, they don't have enough money to uh, keep on lending. We will give them all the money they want. And uh, the way we'll do this is the banks will make loans to corporations for takeovers, make loans for commercial real estate. They will uh, uh, transfer these IOUs 
to the Federal Reserve as deposits. And the Federal Reserve will give them money and lend them money in exchange for this. So the banks have put all of their bad loans uh, and shaky loans into the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve pays them interest on these deposits. So the banks uh, make interest not from the uh, from the corporate borrowers, but the Federal Reserve is creating the interest to uh, pay the banks to make this huge upsweep in loan. So essentially, the Federal Reserve is a lot. Uh, you can look at that as an arm of Chase Manhattan uh, and uh, Citibank. Uh, essentially, they've uh, taken control of the Federal Reserve, and that's really the libertarian ideal uh, of a centrally planned economy planned by the banks. When the libertarians say, let's get the governments out of business, let's get the governments uh, uh, don't uh, run a deficit, that means if the government doesn't run a deficit, if the uh, uh, as it cuts, it'll cut taxes. It cut taxes. It cuts spending, and that means that all of the credit that people need, the economy needs, will be uh, produced by the banks. And now the Fed has said, now we're going to really turn up the screws. We're going to let the banks make five percent of the money. Well, all of a sudden, this growth in uh, the blue, the government debt uh, that you saw, is going to soar. Is a uh, the, uh, the interest rates are going to be such a, a large proportion of the government spending that uh, they're going to have, they're already talking about, we're going to have to cut back Social Security and uh, uh, Medicare. That's, uh, the Repub that's what uh, ha uh, Haley, uh, the Republican uh, uh, nominee, says. The Republicans want to say, uh, if there's a choice between paying Social Security and Medicare or paying interest to the banks and bondholders, the bondholders come first because there are campaign contributors. You don't get campaign contributors and people who are broke because uh, they don't have the money that the banks have that are, uh, and so of course we're going to bail out our campaign contributors. So the government itself has been privatized. That's what neoliberalism is. That's what uh, uh, the anti-government libertarianism is. It means uh, liberty for the banks, and debt serfdom for the uh, population at large. That's what these charts imply. No, absolutely. And and uh, I would say just one thing, of course, that most uh, people will know this, but uh, in case people don't, the Federal Reserve is peculiar among the central banks of the world in being still privately owned. And in that sense, I think that, you know, what, what Michael says is very relevant. And essentially what the Federal Reserve has done is over the last many decades, it has transformed the U.S. economy into an economy in which the primary way, the best way, the most, uh, the fastest way to make money is by essentially speculating, not by investing in the production of goods and services that ordinary people need, but by inflating the value of goods and services already produced. Uh, those of you who know a little bit of Marxism might, might appreciate it, but if Marx was around, he would have called it a very peculiar form of necromancy. What do I mean by that? Because already produced goods and services contain the dead labor that has gone. It is now dead. It is no longer living that has gone into producing it. And you are inflating the value of that. Whereas 
as you do that, you are disvaluing the living labor, much of which may remain unemployed, and all of which is necessary to produce the new goods and services which every year in every period ordinary people need. We need more food, we need more clothing, we need more transportation, we need more housing, etc., etc. And these are the things that are strangulated. Living labor is strangulated while dead labor goes up. Because there's something very peculiar. Remember, as, as, as Michael pointed out, and as I pointed out, a lot of this debt has been incurred. In fact, most of it has been incurred to, to speculate, to inflate the value of already existing assets. And there's something very peculiar about it. Because imagine a house that goes up in price by 30%, 40%, 50%. Nothing in it may have changed, but it goes up in price anyway. Nothing is produced, but it goes up in price. So this is the kind of economy that has been created. And I just also want to show you one other outcome, just uh, uh, my, my last point this time around, but one other outcome of this vast increase in uh, this vast federal government program to um, bail out the, 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 the financial institution. So you see here, the this is a chart of the total assets on the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And you see here from up until the 2000s, it was basically hovering at about just below a trillion dollars. In the 2008 financial crisis, it doubled to a little more than doubled, actually, to over $2 trillion. Then over the course of the decade that followed, thanks to quantitative easing in which the federal government essentially started a program to buy the worthless assets of the financial institutions for good money. This was quantitative easing, and so it piled on, it increased its own balance sheet while essentially making good the damaged balance sheets of the very financial institutions that had caused the 2008 financial right. crisis. And then it was beginning to reduce its, uh, uh, um, its balance sheet when the 2000 when 2020 came the pandemic came and then you see that you have seen an absolutely unprecedented increase to 9 trillion dollars uh, of assets in the federal government and this is the result of that 29 trillion dollars worth of uh, 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 worth of uh, effort that the federal reserve made to um bail out the uh, the financial sector. So yeah, wanted, uh, yeah uh, please, Michael, go ahead. Yeah, uh, when you use the word worthless assets, they weren't exactly worthless. If you could get a hundred percent from the uh, Federal Reserve, uh, the, the 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 word that uh, was used uh, by Marx and uh, almost everyone in the nineteenth century and today was fictitious capital. Uh, in other words, all of these uh, the these debts uh, and bank assets were counted as an asset. If a bank makes a loan to a large uh, uh, corporate real uh, property owner, uh, uh, you own an office building, uh, the bank has that as an, an asset. But as we're seeing today, uh, these asset prices can't be uh, realized. In other words, what if the bank said, okay, now repay the, uh, your mortgage is just falling due because it's a balloon mortgage. You have to pay the, every few years, you have to uh, pay the entire amount or reborrow it. Well, all of a sudden, uh, how, how if it's lent a hundred million dollars against an office building, how is it going to? Uh, uh, and the office building is now worth uh, uh, 40, 40 million dollars. 
why would a bank lend a hundred million to some uh, an owner of a forty million dollar office building? That's the situation we're in today. Now look at these two jumps. Uh, the first jump that you have after two thousand eight. That's the junk mortgage uh, uh, jump. Uh, all of these loans were against fictitious mortgages, mortgages that pretended that there was value there, but there were mortgages mainly to black and Hispanic borrowers uh, by banks who, who cheated them, who over-evaluated the prices. And uh, uh, the, the banks that in general discovered a new way of making money after about 2004. Uh, they could make money by charging racial minorities mo much higher rates, almost double the rates that they charged white people. And uh, this was there were whole uh, banks that special and brokers that specialized this uh, uh, in this. And this was basically uh, the junk mortgage uh, uh, mortgage uh, group. Uh, countrywide financial was the most obvious uh, uh, beneficiary of this. Uh, I think, uh, well, there, there were a number of notorious banks that ended up being merged. Uh, Bank of America uh, was uh, one of the crooked banks. Uh, Citibank was one of the, uh, the most crooked banks, as uh, uh, has been very well documented. Uh, Randy Ray at uh, the uh, Levy Institute and uh, Kansas City has published a big explanation of who were these $29 trillion dollars uh, $27 trillion of loans for. It wasn't, uh, it ended up, many of these loans were ro rolled over and reloaned. So the, the net amount was not uh, 20, 27 trillion, but that's how much was given to the banks with this huge jump. They, instead of sending the bankers to jail, they made them billionaires. That was their, they rewarded them. That was the Obama policy. And that is what makes him uh, one of the most viciously racist presidents in America, in modern American history. Uh, and the Democratic Party uh, became committed uh, to re re returning to its pre-Civil War uh, racist policies. Well, the next uh, group is uh, you see in 2020, uh, 21, this huge jump in uh, bank loans. What were they from? The Federal Reserve began to raise interest rates. And when the uh, all of a sudden, uh, when the Federal Reserve raises uh, interest rates from like one less than 1% to 5%, this means all of a sudden uh, it, debtors had to pay 10 times as much interest as they did before. Well, that what that did was that reduces uh, the, the price of an asset is an inverse proportion to the interest rate. So all of a sudden, uh, the stocks and the bonds held by uh, the, uh, the banks that uh, uh, went under uh, were fictitious. And in fact, uh, although Silicon Valley Bank went under and uh, a New York bank went under, all of the banks, especially Citibank and Chase Manhattan, uh, had all of the loans that they had, all of a sudden were not worth uh, anywhere near what they carried them on the books. The banks were insolvent. Now, the Federal Reserve, uh, here was a wonderful opportunity. The Federal Reserve could have let them go, uh, uh, taken them over by the government. Say, you're insolvent, we're going to wipe out the stockholders and the bondholders because they, they've met you, you, you've uh, made bad, uh, bad loans. But instead, uh, the Federal Reserve said, well, instead of making the banks insolvent, let's make the economy insolvent. And that's the policy we're in today. Uh, with this, the, all this loans, to, to in the bank, uh, this uh, increase in Federal Reserve loan has been to support this upsweep of credit 
that is uh, increasing the burden. All of this upsweep in credit uh, is far in advance of the wages and salaries uh, that people are getting. So, so somehow all this increase in uh, interest charges and amortization charges and penalty fees uh, end up uh, le impoverishing the economy by leading less to spend on food and clothing and other consumer spending. And the yes, consumer and, spending and just, uh, going uh, up, it's because of the inflation. Yeah, and, and a, a small correction. Um, uh, this uh, th this big uh, increase, of course, was increased because the Federal Reserve started a new uh, massive uh, uh, liquidity provision program, quantitative easing program, when the pandemic hit. And the one that you're talking about, where essentially they were bailing out Silicon Valley Bank, et cetera, this yeah. is the small increase here, yeah. which is where this is which ha what happened after interest rates started rising. But throughout this period, right up until about here, interest rates remained at historic lows. And just one other thing I wanted to say about this before we, we close this chart, which is that, you know, around 2013, about here, essentially, the Federal Reserve decided that it was going to try to uh, decrease the size of its balance sheet. So you can see, you know, it was still only about three and a half trillion, not the nine trillion that it is today. Uh, but you know what the financial institutions and the financial sector did? The financial sector at the time in 2013 threw a taper tantrum. The Federal Reserve was threatening to taper its uh, its balance sheets, essentially, you know, to 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 decrease it. And they said, we're not having it. You've got to keep supporting us and you've got to buy our assets. And so essentially the Federal Reserve humored them in their tantrum and they continued to expand the balance sheet and then as as we saw in the pandemic did even more so etc so so that's the uh, the thing we're looking at and 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 the other thing i just wanted to point out of course is that um you know i completely agree with everything that michael said about just how racist the system is because at the end of the day you know people think that debt is a market relationship Ma debt is not a market relationship it's a relationship between on the whole relatively privileged people one of which decides to lend money to to the other so uh, the idea that somehow by passing a piece of legislation, you can make uh, the poor people of the United States, the black people of the United States, the Hispanic people of the United States into homeowners. This was always a bit problematic. And in the end, the whole 2008 financial crisis, um, the, the vast buildup of debt that preceded it, only a tiny fraction, which happened towards the very end of that vast increase, was actually loans to subprime borrowers. The financial institutions only began lending to the subprime borrowers once they had filled the prime borrowers to the gills with all the debt they could take. And only then they moved. And so in many ways, the subprime borrowers came last and they were also, of course, the, the ones to suffer the most. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think these are really, so, so really we are living in an economy that is awash with debt, as we were just saying. And it really is the opposite of the sort of economy we ought to have. And Michael, you know, uh, one of the things about the whole classical conceptions of land and rent and interest and so on is, of course, that classical political economy always looked down on things like this, like interest and rent, because it saw it as unearned income, isn't it? Well, 
I could have a whole uh, hour on that, but I, I want to uh, follow up uh, with some charts on the uh, uh, the the racial element of this. Uh, yes, so I, far, we've, we've yeah. talked about uh, how the volume of debt is too large to be paid. But I want to say there's another aspect of debt. And if you could show the racial, that's right, that chart is very interesting. Uh, one of the uh, results of debt is to create a bifurcated economy. And that means that we're in a, a kind of apartheid economy. We're in a financial apartheid economy. 10% uh, of the population owns uh, over 75% of the stocks and bonds in the population. And uh, they, uh, very, they're almost entirely uh, a white population. And uh, the, uh, we've talked about mortgage debt being 80% of uh, uh, the overall debt burden. I want to set, show uh, what, what has happened long before uh, this chart begins in 2002. I want to begin in 1945, at the end of uh, World War II. Uh, that's really when uh, the houses had not been built during the uh, Depression because uh, people uh, there wasn't a market for them. They weren't being built during World War II because all of the uh, uh, raw materials were going through the war effort, uh, and uh, debt was, for the whole economy was all, uh, very, very low debt in 1945 because there was nothing to borrow money for. You couldn't borrow m m money to consume because uh, everything was rationed uh, uh, anyway. But all, uh, all, finally, they began to uh, make uh, loans, and uh, the, what had spurred the, uh, the American takeoff and that of other countries uh, all countries of Europe, America, and elsewhere were rebuilding after the war. And most of this rebuilding was rebuilding for housing. That was when the great housing was taking place, when uh, uh, here in Queens, uh, uh, you had major developers, not only Trump's uh, fa uh, father, but uh, uh, the, the, all the famous experiments and uh, group housing were made. There was only one thing. Uh, you, okay, well, White people were able to buy houses for maybe maybe let's ten thousand dollars was a typical price of house that now costs a million dollars. The problem is that uh, banks would only make uh, in, in order to buy a house you had to take out a mortgage. Nobody has enough money to buy the whole value of a house, and if wages uh, were maybe three or four thousand dollars a year back in 1945, you couldn't even buy uh, a, a ten thousand dollar house. Nobody had that. You had to go to the banks. Banks until uh, about 2000, uh, 2001 would only make mortgage loans uh, almost entirely to white people, unless you were a very, very wealthy black person or uh, a Hispanic. That, uh, so what you created was a bifurcated society. Uh, these houses uh, were be uh, the people who bought the houses in uh, 1945. They returned from the war. Uh, they took civilian jobs. They bought a house, and uh, many of them uh, died of old age, but they left the family, the houses, to the children. And uh, uh, you had one generation after another generation of white people leaving the house to the children, uh, leaving them enough uh, inheritance to have a house of their own and an education of their own. So what you had was a homeowning, educated uh, white class, uh, but this was not available uh, to the uh, uh, to non-whites. 
uh, in this country. So what the debt, uh, uh, the restriction of credit uh, to the uh, to the uh, the prime human beings, not to the unprime uh, borrowers. Uh, we're talking about a pretty racist policy. Uh, well, very responsible for the lack, the fact that you've had uh, uh, now uh, 75 years almost, well, longer than that, it's uh, uh, 70, uh, yeah, 75 years since uh, World War II, you, you have a disenfranchised non-white uh, class in uh, the United States of uh, uh, hereditary homeowners uh, who, who can get into college because their parents and grandparents uh, went to uh, a uh, Ivy League university. Uh, and there's a monopoly of uh, housing and education and wealth uh, at the top of the economic pyramid. And uh, the rest of the economy is essentially disenfranchised as if we're in, in our own financialized apartheid economy. Yes, and you know, there's a, a couple of other points. By the way, in this chart, I should just explain that the top line here is the essentially uh, 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 showing the uh, home ownership rates that is about 75% uh, of non-Hispanic whites in the United States. The red line, which is the, the bottom here, is uh, of black people alone in the United States. And then the green line is of Hispanics of any race in the United States. So that presumably includes, for example, if you were a relatively white Hispanic is included and they, they do a little bit better. But you can see that the uh, rate of home ownership of black people from the early 2000s till today has really not budged. If anything, it's slightly worse today than it used to be back then and uh, became considerably uh, uh, worse uh, just before the pandemic, uh, uh, reaching a, a very low level of um, uh, 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 below like around 40%, in fact. So anyway, that's that's the thing. But but in addition, you know, in addition to these things, you know, the kind of financialized economy in which we live, increasingly uh, owning of houses and land, et cetera, does not necessarily because of the because of mortgages, the ownership of land or houses does not necessarily confer you on you or any privilege because uh, homeowners find that they are paying interest to banks and even landlords typically are highly leveraged so that bulk of what they are collecting in rent actually ends up as interest to banks. So in a certain sense, like we was, what we are trying to say is that the Federal Reserve has engineered an economy in which not, e not only profits and wages have become essentially in hoc, are in hoc to pay interest, are used to pay interest, but so is rent. So that interest has become sort of the prime form of 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 uh, of of um of income the sort of the at the top of the income pyramid so to speak and this is a result of changes also in the tax structure so for example um in the us taxation system uh, earnings from uh, uh, interest and rent are treated a lot more softly, a lot more favorably than our earnings from work. This is a huge problem. That sort of goes back to the value theory that I think requires uh, a, a separate discussion altogether because it's so it's so fundamental uh, that the uh, the whole idea of classical economics and the free market was uh, a market to be free from rent. Rent being unearned income. Rent is what landlords make in their sleep. 
uh, rent uh, is, is not created by labor. And uh, most people don't realize that uh, what's called the labor theory of value uh, that is based on Ricardo and Marx and the whole 19th century. The idea was uh, uh, to separate uh, value, which is created by labor, from economic rent, which is created by hereditary, by privilege, by property ownership, by have, uh, by owner, by banking, and by monopolists and by landlords who make their money, economic rent, by owning uh, rental property or by lending money and making interest or by having a company, a monopoly, and you just uh, raise prices. And much of the inflation, as uh, Radica mentioned at the beginning of the talk, is uh, they call it profit inflation, meaning a company just decides, let's, ra let's uh, raise the price of drugs. For instance, uh, my wife is on a, uh, uh, a uh, employer, uh, United Healthcare plan. The, the, uh, price, the price that she has to pay local uh, 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 drugstores went up quintupled on January 1st because uh, the, uh, the, the healthcare uh, uh, insurer said, we can make money by quintupling the price. Uh, this is, and drug companies have been raising the prices all across the board, not by producing more, not because their costs have gone up, uh, which would be ultimately the cost would be a cost of production, labor and materials, but simply because they've be become a monopoly and the Biden administration, the Democratic Party has always been the great protector of monopolies uh, because that's their campaign contributors. And if you, uh, if you look at the uh, who had the uh, uh, the uh, health committees and the others uh, in Congress, related committees in Congress, uh, their campaign contributors come from the pharmaceutical and drug uh, industry. So you have the governments representing uh, their campaign contributors, the military uh, and the State Department uh, uh, desks at the Senate and House are subsid uh, subsidized and paid for by the military industrial complex, the health health departments from uh, the drug companies, the and uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, we're that part of the problem of uh, what has made America a failed economy, and it's a failed economy because of the austerity that this uh, uh, debt apartheid has created. No, and you know, I mean, and, and, and we should probably uh, soon shift to talking about solutions. But let me just add a small point to what you were saying, which is that, of course, if you look at the U.S. economy today, uh, you will see that over the neoliberal period, what has happened is that it has become dominated, of course, by the financial sector, the so-called fire sector, finance, insurance and real estate. And on top of that, if you look at what are the other sectors of the U.S. economy, which are really important and uh, lucrative, you will see that they are the military industrial complex. They are the big pharma and they are information and communications technology. And in pretty well, all of these cases, these uh, these sectors are characterized by a high degree of monopoly a high degree of rent uh, uh, seeking in the sense that a military industrial complex, for example, essentially relies on vast government contracts, which are risk free in which they get to pay, you know, they get, get to mark up costs as much as they like. And big pharma and information and communications technology rely on intellectual property rights in order to secure their monopoly. So in all of these ways, you this has created an economy which is very 
undynamic, it is not very efficient, but at the same time, it is very lucrative for those who own it, which of course puts an added burden on ordinary Americans. Yeah, Michael. Well, one of the problems with it being undynamic is uh, you're, uh, you're having a decline in, uh, uh, in office space, uh, in real estate, in commercial real estate. Uh, we've, we've been talking about uh, uh, home ownership uh, rates and how unfair that is, but uh, you remember back in 2008, uh, when there was the property price crash, you had what was called jingle mail. Uh, you would have uh, buyers, uh, especially in Nevada, where the, in Florida, where there was a huge run-up in housing prices. They'd say, okay, I owe uh, $500,000 for this house, but now the house just like it next door is selling for $300,000. I'll just mail back the keys to the bank and say, okay, I'm defaulting. You can have the house. I'm just not going to pay. I'm, I'm going to take out a new loan and buy the house next door. Well, uh, th that phenomenon is now happening for businesses. For uh, uh, apparently 40% of uh, U.S. Uh, off, uh, commercial properties uh, are, are occupied. In other words, since uh, COVID uh, and most of all, since the economy began to shrink, as a result of this debt deflation, uh, there was, uh, businesses have been going out of business. And uh, even those who are in business, you have people working from home. So now if you have the average occupancy rate of buildings being only 40%, uh, how is the owner going to have the money to pay uh, for the bank? Well, because the banks uh, have lent uh, uh, almost 100% of, of the value of the building to the uh, homeowner, uh, who's willing to, to pay all of the rents and in, in, as interest, rent is for paying interest, that's the basic motto, uh, what they want is the capital gain the, in the price of the building, they realize there's not going to be a capital gain. It, this was all fictitious capital, it's going down, uh, we're mailing our keys back to the bank and we're walking away from the building. So now the, they're in the, uh, this year and next year, there is uh, such an enormous uh, trillions of dollars of commercial real estate falling due, not only here, but in England and other countries, that uh, the banks are all of a sudden going to be left with uh, uh, mortgages that are unpaid. And against these mortgages, they have liabilities to their depositors, to their bondholders. And most of all, they want to pay millions of dollars to the, uh, uh, I think, Jamie, uh, uh, the head of Chase Manhattan gets a $29 million uh, a year for running a company that's gone bankrupt and is kept alive because he gives some of that uh, $29 million to uh, the politicians who continue to, to uh, appoint uh, Federal Reserve people who will bail them out. It's a circuit. That's what you call a circular flow. Uh, you're, uh, when a, what are you going to do when all of a sudden the banks shouldn't be going under? Well, normally, if they've made bad loans, somebody has to suffer. Who's going to suffer? Well, as Bill Clinton uh, said, uh, when he was told uh, you have to follow, uh, do what Alan Greenspan says and support the banks, Clinton said, oh, it's all about the bondholders. And uh, in 2009, uh, when uh, uh, Obama came in and decided to bail out the banks, Sheila Baer, the head of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, said, wait a minute, we have a crooked, incompetent bank. There's one bank in America that's more crooked than all the others and more incompetent, that's First National City Bank. Let's take it over. 
Let's make it a public bank. They can't, you can't let this bank destroy the whole economy by being so greedy that it makes loans way in advance of uh, excessive the value of property and keeps ex expecting to be bailed out so it can make more interest and pay its uh, officers more. Let's drive it under. And uh, uh, Obama and his uh, Treasury Secretary, uh, uh, Tim, uh, said it's all about, yeah, uh, it's all about the bondholders and uh, uh, who own the banks. So the question is, uh, what will the banks do when all these uh, mortgage loans go under? Uh, well, wipe out the stockholders, but should they, uh, the bondholders are the wealthiest 1% of the population. They're the ones who own most of the bank uh, bonds. Who do you think the government is going to support? Is it going to support the economy? or the stockholders, or the 1%. Uh, that really is uh, the uh, the way in which you should think about an economy being an apartheid economy, not simply ethnically and racially, but financially. That's the real apartheid between creditors and debtors that I think all of our shows are uh, examining from uh, different perspectives. Well, you know, I just like to add a couple of points to what you were saying, Michael. This is very interesting because if you look at commercial real estate, there's no doubt for the last many months there have been headlines about how there is a collapse of commercial real estate prices. It's coming. In fact, it's already happening. As as Michael says, uh, 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 the the fall in the value of commercial real estate is already ongoing from what we read in the financial press. The really big prestige buildings may not be affected, but the next layer and down all these buildings will be affected. Everybody who has walked around a big city in the in North America, or for that matter, elsewhere in Europe, will see that commercial space is essentially going down. So many are boarded up, so many are empty, and so on. And according to one measure, about 10% of US bank assets actually rely on the value of commercial real estate. Now, Michael asks, you know, when the crisis comes, well, the crisis is already here. So who is the Federal Reserve going to help? But you know what? I'm not even sure. And the U.S. government, who are they going to help? Who are U.S. authorities going to help? I'm not even sure they're going to be able to help them because the fact is that as the value of these assets decline, banks already have to report them if they are publicly listed on an ongoing basis, which means that their shares will already go down. And there is no doubt that a crash will come. And when it comes, yes, the Federal Reserve will once again, as you saw with the Silicon Valley Bank, essentially uh, in fact, there was another point that I wanted to make there. Essentially, Ms. Yellen stepped forward and said, we are going to uh, we are going to guarantee all depositors, even if their deposits are higher than $250,000. Now, you might think that this is somehow a very democratic thing, but on the contrary, if you look at what kind of bank Silicon Valley Bank was, essentially, it was like a club in which a select group of rich people who are all connected with one another lent each other vast quantities of money. Now, what does lending mean? It means that I go to my friend and, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and say, you know, please give me $5 million. I'm going to have a start startup. You don't even look at whether my startup is worth supporting. You just say, okay, I'll give you, I'm going to show a deposit of 5 million in your account. These are the deposits that Ms. Yellen was protecting. This is not even the money that they have deposited in the bank. This is money that is in a deposit in my name because it has been lent to me. So if you think about just how huge is the is the boondoggle that is protecting the interests of the 
tiny minority of the very wealthy. I hope in this program, we've given you some idea of the lengths to which US authorities have gone to protect the wealth of this minority. And in our next show, maybe what we'll do is we are going to devote it entirely to talking about what needs to happen if we are going to move away from this kind of economy. Yeah, that's a, a good way to end it. There's so much uh, that it's leading into. Uh, and uh, the, la uh, the last thing that the, the uh, Federal Reserve wants is for what if banks reported the actual market value of their assets? When you have a balance sheet, assets and liabilities, uh, they're holding the assets that the price that, that they made the loan for, uh, say $100 million for a building. But what if they reported their assets is uh, only $40 million for the building? You would have bank assets here and the liabilities here. They'd look just like most people in America. <laughs> Few assets, 50% uh, of Americans don't have any assets, but they have a big debt. Uh, that's an interesting bar chart to show assets, liabilities, and you can look at it by uh, income group. Uh, the Federal Reserve does not uh, produce believable statistics on uh, debt as a proportion of income. If you look at the Federal Reserve uh, statistics of debt to income by uh, percentile, 10%, 20%, nothing has changed in the last 50 years. Nobody's run into debt at all They because they say, let's assume that uh, debt is constant uh, for the last uh, half century. Uh, the, uh, the statistics are fictitious, uh, and they're fictitious because that protects the, uh, the fact that most of this, what passes is bank capital is fictitious. I mean, we're in a, a fictitious economy. Uh, it's sort of like trying to read about uh, uh, international affairs in the New York Times. That's about uh, as realistic as the uh, uh, Federal Reserve statistics are. And yeah, we're trying I mean, to pierce that. Exactly. I mean, it's basically the rich people of the United States and the big financial institutions of the U.S. are in a situation in which, you know, they make a bad investment, they make a loss and they go, oops. And then the Federal Reserve, which is their sugar daddy, essentially comes and makes good all their losses. It gives them more money to plug the holes in their balance sheets that they have themselves created out of their own greed and misjudgment and bad judgment. So there we have it. It's this kind of economy that unfortunately the United States is laden down with today. And the, so the question naturally arises, what kind of economy do Americans need in its place? You know, I, I want to add one point out there. The, the important thing is that these rich people who are not paying their debts do not have to pay penalty rates. Uh, the uh, the large uh, uh, businessmen who owe debts don't pay penalty rates. You know that if you're a, a family and you're running a credit card debt, if you miss a payment uh, in your electric bill or anywhere, your rate goes up from 19% uh, to 30% uh, or, or more. That's not the case. If, if you're rich people, there's one set of interest rates and penalties for 99% of the population, another set for the wealthiest 1% to 10% of the population, and you're not in it. And <laughs> that's George what Carlin we call financial apartheid. So yes. I think with that, uh, Michael and I will say goodbye and uh, hope to see you in a couple of weeks uh, and we'll talk about what kind of economy we need instead. Thanks very much for joining us and see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.